Well, we are nearing the end of the Gospel of John. Only a couple of chapters remain, but we have uh, slowed down intentionally during this time of the suffering of the cross. Because as you can see, uh, if you look at John's Gospel as a whole, even the way that he has it structured, uh, there is a lot of time spent uh, just chapter-wise on not only the final week of Jesus' life, but on that final night and final day of his life as well. So we have been uh, slowing down ourselves and taking a, a long look at this hour. And last week, and even the week prior to that, we got into some of the physical travails of the cross. Uh, last week especially, we looked at the, the intense and horrific physical suffering that not only Jesus, but, but all those who were crucified in that day uh, endured uh, just via that method of execution. This morning, we conclude uh, this time on the cross as we see Jesus' life uh, come to an end. Our text this morning is a short one, but it is packed. It's John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. If you have your Bible, as always, I'd encourage you to uh, open it up and keep it open as, as we go along. And if you'd like to follow along but don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you, if you look in the seats in front of you underneath, you'll find a Bible there, and you can, use, uh, you can follow along in that. The passage in that Bible will be on page 906. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now looking at verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing all that all was now finished, said, parenthesis, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now if you look at this verse uh, and you look at it in the Greek, there are two ways that this verse can be translated. The first way is the one that our ESV translation, the one that I read this morning, has it translated. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now, if you translate it this way, what John is saying here is that Jesus is saying the phrase, I thirst, in order to fulfill Scripture. And of course, if we translate it that way, then, then what John is saying here is akin to what he just said back in John 19, verse 24. If you go back to that section there, Jesus is on the cross, and the soldiers that are crucifying him are dividing up his clothing among themselves. And there were four soldiers, and, and there were five items that Jesus had on him, and so the fifth item was his tunic. 
and they didn't want to cut it up or tear it up, so they gambled for that final article of clothing. And, and what John says in John 19, 24 is, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then John tells us, this was said to fulfill the Scripture, which says, and then John goes ahead and quotes it, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that's from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. Well, again, if we translate it this way, then, then we would say, well, what Scripture would that be that, that Jesus is fulfilling by saying, I thirst? If you look in the Old Testament, there isn't an exact Old Testament passage that has that exact wording, uh, at least none that, that this would be fulfilling. However, uh, Jesus could very well, and, and if you take it this way, it's very easy to see that he's in fact fulfilling, again, passages, and, and uh, in particular, a, a section from Psalm 22, which, again, is very much a description and the best description we have in Scripture of the agony, the physical agony that people uh, experience on the cross. As I mentioned last week, but if you weren't here, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years prior to the crucifixion. It was written by David, and it was written hundreds of years before crucifixion had even been invented as a method of, of uh, torture and as a method of, of execution. But we see there just even wording like they have pierced my hands and my feet. Obviously, God, uh, David was, was experiencing some kind of trial, but the way that he worded it, uh, God used to obviously point forward as a prophetic psalm to what was going on on the cross with Jesus. And if we look at Psalm 22, we can see clearly in Psalm 22, 15, that one of the things that is said there is, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. We see there in that description, great thirst experiencing by this person uh, that is being talked about in Psalm 22. And we also find explicitly in Psalm 69, 21, a verse that we see fulfilled in this very passage, Psalm 69, 21 says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink, which is exactly in this passage. Now, we know from studying crucifixion that extreme dehydration and thirst was something that was experienced. It was one of the hundreds of agonizing things that someone on a cross would experience. So it very well could be that that's what John is saying here, that Jesus said, I thirst in order to fulfill Scripture. However, there's another way to translate this verse. And there are other uh, modern translations that, that lean this other way. And it's actually the way that I prefer to translate it. If you look at the Holman Christian Standard uh, translation, which is, again, another uh, excellent modern translation. This is how the Holman Christian Standard has this verse translated. It says, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, He said, I'm thirsty. Another New Testament scholar, just uh, giving his own translation, 
he, he leans this way as well. He says, Jesus, seeing that everything had been completed so that the Scripture record might also be complete, then said, I'm thirsty. See how there, this is saying something slightly different. It's important to note that either translation works, and it's important to note that both are equally true. What Jesus says from the cross does, in fact, fulfill Psalm 22.15 and Psalm 69.21. But if we look at the Greek word translated finished, that after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished, finished doesn't mean so much ended as it means completed or accomplished. That when Jesus was seeing that all things had been accomplished, and when we look at it that second way, it means that Jesus was at this point on the cross, as he hung there in agony, he was now fully aware that all that he had come to do up till that point had been fully accomplished. That there was nothing left for him to accomplish up till that point. But also what he was understanding was not only that everything that he had come to fulfill had been accomplished, but that, John is saying here, that it was a mission that was not hidden. That what Jesus came to accomplish, that his mission that he was born to fulfill was something that had been foretold and prefigured in the Old Testament Scriptures. I think it's very important that we understand this, even if we choose to translate it the other way. Because so often, Christians can misunderstand the Old Testament. In fact, I think a lot of times, preachers misunderstand the Old Testament. I think, you see, a lot of preachers, in fact, never venture into the Old Testament because they don't know what to do with the Old Testament. Christians will read the Old Testament and conclude that it is simply a rule book or maybe a, a, a book of containing a lot of moral examples that we're to try to live up to. But if we understand what Jesus is saying about his mission, then we come to understand that the whole Old Testament is primarily about him. In fact, when we look at what Jesus says, he's always talking about this. He says again and again that he came in order to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Luke chapter 4. He's standing in a synagogue and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah. And Luke tells us that he read the scroll, he rolled it up, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Matthew tells us that when Jesus was being arrested, uh, the night that he was betrayed, he told Peter to put away his sword, and he said, look, don't you think that I can appeal to my father? He can at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, but, but how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? But it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against me as, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the Scriptures of the prophets must be fulfilled. Again and again, 
Jesus, looking at his foes in in John chapter 5, he said to them, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. Well, what books of the Bible did Moses write? Moses wrote the first five, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah. And you read through that and you think, oh, well, that's the law, the law of Israel. And Jesus said, no, if you actually look at what Moses wrote in the Pentateuch, it's all about me. In John 17, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he says, I glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And after Jesus rose in his resurrected body when he was walking along the road to Emmaus with two disciples, they didn't yet recognize him, but they were talking about all the events that had just happened uh, with the crucifixion. And Jesus looked at them and said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Luke says, beginning with Moses, that's the first five books, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As you read through the Old Testament, understanding that Jesus is the end point. If you read through the Old Testament, understanding that in some way all of this is about him, it all becomes clear. You you start to see the Old Testament in a completely new way and everything comes into focus. You see the puzzle pieces gradually coming together as the picture of who the Messiah is and what he is supposed to do begin to take shape. You find out early on in the Old Testament that that the Messiah is going to be a seed of a woman. As you continue reading through, you you find out that the Messiah is is in fact going to be a a son of Abraham, that he'll be a son of of Isaac and then a son of Jacob. He'll he'll be in that line. You you find out later that, that he's going to be of the tribe of Judah. You find out later that he's going to be a son of David. And more and more pieces are put together until finally you reach the New Testament. Now, either way that you translate verse 28, it's important for us to understand and to see that once again, just as John has done over and over again as he's discussed the crucifixion, we see in this passage again that Jesus is not some victim of fate. He's not a helpless victim, but that he is completely in control of everything that is going on, despite that it's happening to him. One New Testament scholar puts it this way. In this, we see the Lord's comprehensive awareness of the purpose of God. For all the machinations of the Jews and the Romans, of Satan and his legions too, all celebrating their imagined autonomy from God, Jesus was dying according to a timetable fixed in the councils of eternity. Now Jesus says, I thirst. It did fulfill scripture for him to say that, but we can't miss. If we just go and say, well, Jesus said that only to fulfill scripture, We can't miss the fact that Jesus was, in fact, extremely thirsty. That by Jesus exclaiming, I thirst, 
He wasn't just fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, but he was showing to everyone that he was fully and truly a man. That he was fully God and yet fully human. And as fully and truly a man, he was suffering as any man would. So it's important for us to understand that Jesus' suffering was part of his mission. That Jesus came to earth to fulfill a mission that he was sent by God to fulfill a mission, and that part of that mission was his suffering. I think so often as as Christians, we can confuse that. We can uh, somehow think that there's no way that God could have suffering be a part of his purpose for my life. I'm actually uh, reading through the Bible in a year, and right now I'm in Job and just reading through Job, you can, you can see Job uh, over and over again. He, he, he wasn't privy to, that, to, the, to the things that happened prior to his suffering. He was just living his life. And he was following God and, and trying to be as faithful to God as he could. And then he has, perhaps, you know, prior to Christ, the worst suffering of anyone on earth in Scripture. And Job is wondering why. And he goes to God again and again, and he says, I don't understand why this is happening to me. Now, one of the things we can say is that at the very least, Job is acknowledging that God had something to do with it. I think that's something that we can take a lesson from, because Job is not saying that there's no way that God could have anything to do with this. In fact, we see that God is sovereign over all of it. Suffering can be a fulfillment of God's purpose in our lives too, brothers and sisters. And I think too, we see here in Jesus' statement, I thirst, not only that he's fully man, but I think we see an irony here too in what Jesus is saying here on the cross. Because John tells us when he gives us the time of day, the only time that he mentions a time uh, of this trial of Jesus, John mentions that it was about the sixth hour when all of this trial began. And as readers of John's gospel, if we've read through the whole thing, uh, we might hearken back to a time early in Jesus' ministry when at the very start, he's in the area of Samaria. And around the sixth hour, Jesus says the same thing. In so many words, he sits down by a well and says, I thirst. And when a Samaritan woman comes up to him to uh, get some water from him, he ends up getting into a conversation with her. And what he says to her is this, everyone who drinks of this water from the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him the spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the irony that we see here is that this one, this one who holds the keys to this living water, this one who pours out this living water such that it, the one that receives the living water, it becomes a, a, a spring, a well that springs up to new life, is himself now crying out, I thirst, at the end of his life. But we know that Jesus, the Lamb, is going thirsty for a purpose. He is going thirsty so that we 
might be able to receive the living water and never thirst again. Well, we see the response in verse 29. We aren't told by John exactly who it is that gave him this sour wine. It's probably one of the soldiers, if you look at the other accounts, that they responded to Jesus' statement of thirst. Now, let's not confuse what he's given here with what he was given earlier. Earlier on in the crucifixion, uh, probably someone who loved him and, and was a follower, maybe a disciple or, or, or a good friend, uh, tried to give him something else to drink. Matthew 27, 34 says, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now that drink, that wine mixed with gall, was uh, an, uh, an early primitive anesthetic. It was a sedative. It was something that was designed to dull the pain. And when Jesus tasted that, he would not drink it. But here, he's given something else. Here, he's given a very cheap wine. It's probably something that was there uh, for the soldiers. They had to be there all day. Uh, it's in the hot sun. And so there's a jar somewhere with this very inexpensive, cheap, sour wine, probably getting very warm, but standing somewhere near the cross. And so when one of the soldiers hears him say, I thirst, he takes a sponge and he soaks up this hot, sour wine and puts it, the other gospels say, on a stalk and lifts it up to his mouth. We see here, I think, in John's account, another irony. Because here, when Jesus is at his time of greatest need and he is thirsty, what did we give him? We gave him the worst wine available. Again, John would have us hearken back to the beginning of his ministry. When Jesus began his ministry, and we see his first sign when he's at a wedding in Cana, and there are people who have need, and not nearly the great need that Jesus has. And they say, we've run out of wine. Can you do something about it? And Jesus, the creator of the world, creates for them to provide for them when they are in their need the best wine that anyone has ever tasted. And here at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, when he is in great need, he is given the worst. But notice again, John never strays too far again from the purpose of this death. He only goes so far before he reminds us again that Jesus' death is fulfilling the Old Testament. Because whereas the Synoptic Gospels tell us that the sponge was put on some kind of stalk, but that they don't really specify what, John tells us that this sponge is put on a hyssop branch. And we are reminded again that Jesus is dying on Passover. And when you go back and you look at the original Passover, when God rescued his people from slavery, when by his sovereign hand he rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians, and he first gave them the Passover, he said to them, I want you to slay the lamb without blemish. And I want you to take a bunch of hyssop, and I want you to dip it in the blood of the lamb, and I want you to touch the lintel and the two doorposts with that blood that is in the basin. Don't go out of the door of your house until morning, for the Lord is going to pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, and he will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
Well, after Jesus is given this sour wine, John tells us that he said, it is finished. And again, that that word there, just as it meant earlier, it means all has been completed. All has been accomplished. Jesus is saying here at the end, when he is about to die, that everything that he came to do, he has accomplished. What is that? What has he accomplished? Because to the naked eye, if, if, if you're just there watching that, that day and you don't understand what he's doing, you, you might think that a, 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 a cry like that at the end of, of this poor pitiful life and, and this pitiful end, when this man says, I have accomplished everything that I came to do, and then you say, well, what, what was that? You only lived to be 33 years old. Your, your ministry uh, spanned a brief three years and you, you died a criminal's death of torture. What in the world could you have accomplished? Well, I think it's important to understand everything that Jesus said from the cross and when he said those things. Because John tells us three things that Jesus said, but when we look at everything that Jesus said from the cross, when we look at all the other Gospels, we understand that Jesus said seven statements while hanging on the cross. John begins our passage by saying, after this, in verse 28, after this. Now, if you've been reading John's Gospel, you see that what came immediately before the after this statement was Jesus speaking to the Apostle John and his mother and caring for his mother, as we talked about last week. But after this is an unspecified amount of time. And when we read through the other gospel accounts, we see that there were other things that happened from the cross. When we look at the chronology of what Jesus says from the cross, and we look at these seven statements, we see something interesting. The first three statements that Jesus makes from the cross are for the sake of others. The first thing that Jesus says from the cross is a plea of forgiveness for those who are torturing him. Luke tells us in Luke 23, 34 that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Later, Jesus, in his second statement, promises eternal life to a fellow criminal hanging on the cross next to him. And in fact, it was a criminal who, up till that point, had joined in on the mockery. Jesus looked at him when he expressed his faith in Jesus' coming kingdom, and he said, truly, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then later, as more time went by, Jesus, in his third statement, looks down at his mother, looks at his apostle, and in his final statement, caring for others, entrusts his widowed mother to the care of the apostle John. Woman, behold your son, in John 19. We see, when we look at these seven statements of Jesus, the last three statements are now really verbalizing for all to hear his suffering and his death. Jesus says first, I thirst, what we just talked about. He states that he is truly man, suffering in this way. 
suffering that would accompany anyone being crucified. And then John tells us that he states by his death that he accomplished everything that he came to do. It is finished. And then Luke tells us that his final words, he states that his spirit is about to depart from his body. Luke 23, 46. Seven statements. But at the center of all of these statements is the one I haven't mentioned yet. And it is the one that lands right in the center and it is the one that is perhaps the one that matters most of all. Because in between his statements for the care of others and his statements of physical suffering and death is the anguished cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you've read John's gospel up to this point, and you know that that's what he said in those hours of darkness, you might think that's an impossible statement coming from the lips of Jesus. Because John has told us that from the beginning of his life, in fact, from the beginning of all eternity, when there was no beginning, John said that Jesus and the Father were one. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And that word with there is, means an intense personal connection, a face-to-face connection. And the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. When Jesus was, was walking on the earth in, in the, as the incarnate son, he said over and over again that he is with the Father, that the Father was with him. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And Jesus always referred to his heavenly Father as my Father. In fact, he referred to him in such a way that he was making it clear to all who heard him call God the Father my Father. He was making it clear that he was in a special way the Son of God that he was the only begotten, such that John chapter uh, 5, verse 18, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, in their eyes, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood what he meant when he said, God is my father. And even the night before his crucifixion, even up till that point, even when he was about to be betrayed and abandoned by every human companion that he had, he looked at his apostles and he said, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one of you to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Then he says, But I am not alone, for the Father is with me. All the way up till that point, the Father and Jesus were together. But here on the cross, as a supernatural darkness blotted out the sun that afternoon, Jesus cried out from the cross, not my Father, but my God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, the reader of John's Gospel will say, that seems impossible. Why? Why in his moment of greatest need would the Father abandon him? And it's because during those hours, Jesus was drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. You see, if you're looking at the cross solely from a 
physical suffering standpoint, yes, Jesus suffered. And he suffered greater than anyone in this room, I'm sure, will ever come close to suffering. But what Jesus suffered physically was something that thousands of others also suffered. Crucifixion wasn't just, you know, given to one man in the history of the world. Many had been crucified. But you see, we have to look beyond the physical suffering because there was an invisible suffering that was infinitely worse than anything that Jesus suffered physically. Because for the first and only time in human history, someone literally suffered hell on earth. And for the first and only time in his entire existence, Jesus called his heavenly Father, my God, my God, because for the first and only time in his life, Jesus was completely abandoned even by his father. What we have to understand is that the Old Testament promised this as well. Yes, the Old Testament said that that the Messiah would be the seed of a woman. It said that the Messiah would be a son of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and a son of David and a son of Judah. But somewhere in the Old Testament, God said that the Messiah would also be a suffering servant. And Interestingly, it says that this suffering servant would be crushed by God himself. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he, speaking of the suffering servant, has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. He was wounded for, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. You see, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. The Lord God is speaking. And he says, awake O sword, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. The Old Testament promised that God would bear the sword against his very own shepherd, his very own Messiah. And when Jesus summed up his mission early on before he ever went to the cross, he put it this way. He said, you see, I am the good shepherd, and as the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. He said, you see, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and drinking the cup of the Father's wrath, invisible to every, everyone who witnessed it that day, was what he came to do. That was what he pleaded, Abba, Father, please take this cup from me. But nevertheless, if it is your will that I drink it fully, I will. The father bore the knife against his son. And that brings us back to one Old Testament account, pointing to that day on the cross. When in Genesis chapter 22, God spoke to Abraham. God said, Abraham, I want you to take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
I want you to go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Abraham replied, God will provide the lamb for himself. So they both went together. And when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said today, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Christian Abraham had offered up many offerings before this one. He had built many altars already. He had built an altar in Bethel, one in Hebron, one in Beersheba. But on the day that he was asked to sacrifice his only son, his only begotten son whom he loved, God told him to travel 30 miles days away for this sacrifice so that it would be on that particular mountain that God would show him. And it was on that particular mountain that Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice on his shoulders. Why would God tell Abraham to go so far just to be on that spot? Because you see, 2,000 years later, that very hill, Mount Moriah, would be called Calvary. 2,000 years later, it would be that very hill upon which God's only begotten and beloved Son would walk, carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his back. Only what God spared Abraham from doing that day, as Abraham raised the knife to slaughter his only son, God stayed his hand. And what God stopped Abraham from doing, sacrificing his only begotten and beloved son, he in fact did. And Jesus, that day on the cross, became not only the beloved son, but he became the lamb that was provided. Isn't it amazing that after God provided the ram, Abraham called the mountain not God has provided, but the Lord God will provide. That's because even though God had just provided a temporary substitute, the ultimate provision, the Lamb of God, was yet to be provided. John tells us as he closes out the account that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's important for us to understand that when John says he gave up his spirit, he doesn't mean the Holy Spirit. Uh, John is saying here 
that Jesus, again, fully human, died. That in death, your body and spirit that God has united in life, is se- they are separated in death. And that the spirit of a human being leaves the body. That the body rests in the tomb until Christ returns and the spirit and the body are once again united now in a resurrected and glorified body to be forever with the Lord. But we know from Scripture that Jesus is the first fruits, that what happened to Jesus and what we will see uh, in a few weeks in the resurrection will happen to all saints. We also know that when a saint's soul leaves his or her body, that saint is immediately in the presence of the Lord spiritually, awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. And so at Christ's death, he as a man prefigures, in a sense, death and shows forth death that happens to all of us as souls are separated from bodies. In that sense, Jesus' death is just like ours. But there's a very important sense in which it's very unlike ours. Because John makes it clear that Jesus willingly and in control of the situation gives up his spirit. It is not taken from him. The Greek means here that Jesus handed his spirit over, and that's not the way that death is usually described, but it does fulfill Old Testament prophecy, because when Isaiah is speaking about the suffering servant, he says, I will assign him a portion with the multitudes, he will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful, because he willingly submitted to death. Another way to translate that is he handed over his soul to death. It's not the way the New Testament usually describes death, but it is the way that Jesus said he would die. In John chapter 10, he said, see, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down And as we'll see in a few weeks, he has the authority to take it back up again. So Jesus handed over his soul. To whom did he hand it over? Because we know that up until that point, the father had poured out his wrath on his son. But Luke tells us, it's so important to see this, That Jesus' final words were this. When the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, Jesus breathed his last. It's important to understand that after Jesus had fully drunk the wrath of God. He was with his Father again. We need to understand that, Christian, because we need to understand that on the cross, Jesus drank every drop of wrath that there was to drink. There is no more wrath remaining for his sheep. He drank it all. And when he had completed his trial... It was no longer my God, my God, but again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when his spirit was handed over, it was handed over to his Father. As he told the thief, today 
you will be with me in paradise. John tells us, in conclusion, that when Jesus knew that his mission was accomplished, he said, it is finished. John doesn't tell us how he said it. He doesn't tell us his tone or or anything. He simply says, it is finished. So we ask ourselves, well, how did Jesus say this? Well, Matthew and Mark give us a clue because they tell us that just before Jesus gave up his spirit, he cried out with a loud cry. And if what John is saying here with it is finished is in fact that cry, then when we understand it that way, we must understand that when Jesus said it's finished, it was not an exhausted mumble. It was not a quiet resignation of death. But when Jesus in his last stages of life said it is finished, he cried out with a victory cry. He cried out with a victory cry because he had lived the life that we were commanded to live but don't, and he suffered the wrath for sin and died the death for sin meant for us, but that we will never see. And as far as Jesus was concerned, there was nothing left to accomplish save for the resurrection, for the salvation of his sheep, which is what he came to do. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. And brothers and sisters, as I close today, keep that in mind. Never forget that there is nothing left, Christian, for you or I to accomplish with regard to our salvation. It has all been accomplished. From first to last, he is coming again, but we have been purchased. The sacrificial system that had been set up to prefigure is over. It was demolished by the Romans. And our faith, which is itself a gift, simply connects us to his work. When he returns, he has completed the work and he will look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, because there is nothing left for us to accomplish but only to live our lives in gratitude for what he did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded again that our Lord accomplished his mission. We are so grateful that he went all the way, that when he agreed to obey your will, he did not stop until salvation was bought. Father, we come here this morning as sinners acknowledging that so often we struggle still. So often we find ourselves wandering far from you. And yet, Lord, we know that there is no condemnation left for us if we are in Christ, because he has borne it all. Father, thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God. And it's in his name we pray.